So we're in the book of 1 Peter that addresses the issue of, of hope. Peter's writing to people he refers to as elect exiles in a minority culture going into a time of persecution. And, and so he says, because of that, he calls our attention to the issue of, of hope. And Peter says that you've been born again to a living hope in verse 3. A living hope through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Living hope means life-enhancing, life-embracing hope through the resurrection of Christ from the dead. Then he says in verse 13 of chapter 1, Therefore, gird your minds for actions. Be sober in spirit. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you when Christ comes again. So hope. Now, this concept of hope, which is a understanding of a preferable future, is a very interesting topic. Let me mention you four different approaches to hope. Hope number one is um, a type of hope that is based on brave, gracious living without a foundation. Let me explain that. Some people say, well, I hope this will happen. There's no certainty there. Um, there's a book that I've recently read. I strongly recommend it. One of, my, one of the guys I respect very much in the 20th century is a man named Eli Weissel. Eli Weissel taught at Boston University for years. He received the Nobel Peace Prize in literature. He was a survivor of the Holocaust. As a teenager, he was in Buchenwald and Auschwitz. He survived. His mom and his dad and his sister were put to death by the Nazis. Other two sisters miraculously survived, so they lived long after the closing of World War II. But he wrote a book entitled Night. That's an outstanding book about, about hope. And recently there was a book released in, entitled The Art of Inventing Hope, Intimate Conversations with Eli Weissel, written by a journalist named Howard Reich. But this is a very readable book, and, and, but, but he says this in the chapter that led to the title of the book. This is what... Uh, Eli Weissel says, and he's, he's talked about, he says this, he says, I am an active pessimist. He says, I'm a pessimist because I see what life does to people, but I don't want to sit and go into despair. I want to actively try to do the right thing. And he says, hatred destroys, therefore I don't choose hatred. And he was a man, he was an incredible man, died a few years ago. But this is what he said in the conversation, it's in the worship guide, and I'm going to show part of it to you on the screen. He says, it, it's difficult enough to think that we are all mortal, that at the end we all die. I try to teach my students and my readers the art of listening and the art of inventing hope. I said, the art of inventing hope even when there is no hope. Let despair take care of itself. I believe much more in hope. Close quote. This man is brilliant. I respect him. He's, he was an observant Jew, um, a gracious man. But, but I read that, and I think about the clarity of the Apostle Paul in a book called 1 Corinthians chapter 15, where it comes to inventing hope. Paul says, if Christ is not risen bodily from the grave, then we have no hope. We're to be pitied more than all men because basically we are believing a lie and your faith is futile, it is empty, it is nothing. 
And so, so Paul is saying, and Peter's saying here, that, that we have a life-enhancing, life-embracing hope because it's based on a historical, true event called the life of Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. And so, so I admire this man, but it's, it's a hope based upon foundational whatever, whatever. You know, there's no foundation. And then there's a, a second approach to hope. And I read an article this week after listening to the briefing by Al Mohler, which I strongly recommend. This is from The New Yorker. And it's written by a man named Jonathan Franzen, and it's entitled, What If We Stop Pretending? And Jonathan Franzen, by his own admission, he says, I'm not a scientist, I, I, I write articles. And he's a well-published writer of articles. But, but he, has, he has bought into the most extreme form of environmental concern. He's a way off the grid. And he says that our planet is going to be destroyed. He said, if you're under the age of 60, you will see horrendous things happening in the next 15 years. He said, if you're under the age of 30, you will experience the unraveling of this world and you'll see incredible starvation and so forth and so on. And he says, it's too late. I don't know why I published the articles, it's too late. This is what he says in part, he says, then there's the matter of hope. If your hope for the future depends on a wildly optimistic scenario, what will you do 10 years from now when the scenario becomes unworkable, even in theory? He says we have 10 years, maybe. But even then, it's too late. Give up on the planet entirely, hoping to mitigate the worst of what's to come. He says there is no hope. You have no realistic hope of winning. Well, that's another concept. So there's, there's hope without foundation, and then there's hope that says there is no hope. And then there's, there's a third category, and some of you in this category. The third category is I'm a professing Christian, but because life has beat me up or because I've been inattentive to the things of God or because of sin, I've lost the concept of hope. I'm just hanging in there. I'm just trying to do the right thing, maybe, but, but I've lost the concept of hope. I get that view from a book called Ecclesiastes in the Old Testament. The writer is King Solomon, and King Solomon is reflecting on a midlife when he walked away from the things of God. He disobeyed God. He, he, he walked in, in opposition to the things of God, and now he's reflecting on a life that is broken and, and, and a life that's filled with regrets. But this is what he says, and this is, this is tough stuff. He says in chapter 1 in this Old Testament book, verse 11, there is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of latter things yet to be among those who come after. In other words, no one's going to remember. No one's going to remember you. Verse 12, um, I, I'm the preacher, and I've been king over Israel many years. And verse 13, and I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under the heavens. It is an unhappy business. He said life is an unhappy business. He's lost his hope. He's lost his bearings. He's lost his perspective. So he says it's, it's an unhappy business. And then he says in verse 14, he says, I have seen everything that is done under the sun and it's all vanity. It's like trying to catch the wind. You don't, you can't, you can't catch the wind. And he said, that's the way I'm living. I've lost my perspective because of sin, because of disregard, 
But because they're not following the Lord fully, there's no hope. And he says later in chapter 2, verse 12, he says this. He says, it appeared to me, I turned to consider wisdom and madness and folly. For what can the man do who comes after the king? Only what has already been done. And it's all futility. Solomon says, I am the most wealthy man on the face of the earth. I have a large army. I have people traveling from thousands of miles to come and ask my wisdom. And I'm telling you, it's all smoke and mirrors. What will be done by the next king who comes after me? Only what I have done, and it's just not worth it. So, so, so you have no foundational hope, but living bravely. You have throwing the towel hope, and you have loss of perspective hope. And then you've got the fourth hope that's in First Peter. I hope this is based upon the strong reality of who Jesus is and what he has done for us. The resurrection of Jesus out of the dead is called <clears throat> a living hope. So this morning, I want to take this passage we've been looking at the last few weeks, and I'm going to give you an elect exile test. And I want you to grade yourself, one to five, one being bad, five being very, very good. How do you measure up in this regards to this passage? How do you grade yourself, or your friends, your spouse, or how do you grade yourself as far as being an elect exile? Four points about being an elect exile who will be used of God and who will be blessed of God. Number one. The first statement is this, elect exiles are called to fix their hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. There's a man named John Dos Passos who is worth reading and worth reading his biography. He's an incredible biographer. He was a writer in the 20th century. He was an ambulance driver with Ernest Hemingway in World War I, for example, a well-known author, but he wrote a book entitled The, the Land of Hope. And he talks about uh, his experience. And, and he says this in part. He says, um, he says, we need to know what kind of firm ground other men belonging to generations before us have found to stand on. In spite of changing conditions of life, they were not very different from ourselves. Their thoughts were the grandfathers of our thoughts. And then he says this, we need to know how they did it. And I look at this text and I say, we need to know how Peter is encouraging these churches who are going to a time of, of, of persecution and social ostracization and being pushed to the, to, to the limits and, and being pushed here and pushed. We didn't know how did they stand strong. And this tells us they fixed their hope completely on the grace to be brought to them at the revelation of Christ. There were people who understood the hope of heaven. How'd they do it? How did tradition tells us? Well, we don't know for sure, but it's been passed on by word of mouth that the apostle Peter was martyred. He was to be crucified like the Lord. And when they came to crucify him, he said, crucify me upside down, with my head down, my feet at the top. I do not deserve to be crucified like my Lord and Savior Jesus. Now, what made a man go to his death saying that? What made a man live with integrity and courage and, and being correctable when he had a face-to-face -face confrontation with Paul, who was much younger 
in the faith. Well, what caused a man to write as, as the elder statesman, be humble and tender and teachable and loving and caring and kind because God exalts the humble and gives grace to the humble. What led him to do that? Here's it. What made him the man he was? Here's the answer. This text, the living hope of Jesus out of the dead. From that, we await eagerly. In fact, I was reading yesterday, I was reading a prayer. If I can find it real quick about this whole issue. It says, um, regarding the hope of heaven. I thought I had it. What was yesterday, 21st? Okay. Listen. Um, Lord, give me the peace that comes from knowing nothing in this world is truly my home. Give me the strength that comes from visiting my future home when I know your love and presence in prayer and worship. I like that. Future home. I praise you that you will bring us someday to the true country we've been longing for all of our lives. The, the, the hope of heaven. In Philippians 3, the apostle Paul is talking about believers versus those who have no hope. And he says this, this is in your worship guide. Paul says, for many, many of whom I have often told you and now tell you, even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and their, they glory in their shame. Their minds are on earthly things, but we are citizens of heaven. From it we await a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. So Paul says, these, we, say, we say this with tears. Do you have tears over people that don't know Christ in your life? He says, we say with tears that, 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 that their end is destruction. Their God is their passion or their belly. They glory in their shame and their end is destruction. But our citizenship is in heaven and we eagerly await a savior from there. There'll be a great day when we're given resurrection bodies and we're with the Lord forever and no more cancer, no more heart disease, no more CP, no more EMS, no more dysfunction. This is there. And so he says, praise God for the, for the hope of heaven. We eagerly await it. So compare and contrast. I'll give you a test. The, the answers are easy. So living hope, living hope, believers in Jesus. Living hope, I'm ransomed by the blood of Christ. I am eternally loved by the triune God and adopted into his family. I have an inheritance that's imperishable, undefiled, and will not fade away, and I'm enjoying it right now in part. And when I die, I go to heaven. The world, without that hope. Listen, so, so they, they work hard. They develop a stock portfolio that gets 12 to 15% a year, they hope. They, they put money away. They, they, they get to be elderly or older, and, and they've, got, they've got money. And, and so they, 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 they're there. They, they, they can retire. And a few years later, you know what happens? They die. It's not hard. So, so and, and some of them say, well, I've got great genes. 
Dr. James, I mean, my, my parents live to be 95, and, and I'm, I'm working hard. I'm, I'm eating oat muffins, for uh, brand muffins, and I'm, I'm, I'm trying to run, and I'm trying to do the right thing, and I'm, I'm, I'm drinking kombucha, which is the ultimate sacrifice, ultimate. I mean, you got to really want to live a long time to drink that stuff. I'm drinking kombucha, and I'm doing all this stuff. And I'm, I'm, so they're going to live to be, let's say, 97, 98. Then what happens? They die. Or you say, well, you know, I, I, I'm going to work hard and I'm going to, I'm going to have kids and, and encourage my kids to have grandkids and I'm going to, to, to love them and build a great family heritage and, and I'm, I'm going to enjoy them. And, and then they get old and they have maybe, have, maybe see great-grandchildren. I, I pray that I'll see my, my grandchildren hit majority in age 21. That's what my prayer, please. Okay, but then that happens. And you know what happens after that? What happens? They die. It's not hard. And, and according to Ecclesiastes, you're forgotten. I'm going to give you a test right now. This is going to be, I don't do this. I'm never, anyway, I want you to think, think here's, here's my question. You ready? Forgotten. I want you to just in 10 seconds turn to your neighbor and tell them if you know the maiden name of your maternal great-grandmother. Are you with me? Maternal great-grandmother would be the grandmama of your mama, her maiden name. And I'm going to ask you how many of you know that. Just raise your hand. Why did you do that? So turn to your neighbor and say, this was her name, her maiden name. Go. we got five seconds, six seconds. Okay, enough, enough. Now, how many people know, or were a couple with somebody who knows the maiden name of their maternal great-grandmama? Raise your hand. Nobody on this side of the balcony. Several on this side of the balcony. Maybe 7%. And that's your family heritage. I, called, I didn't know. I called my mama last night. And I said, she's 89. I said, Mama, the name of your grandmother, her maiden name. She said, oh. Um, and, and she told me her maternal. I said, how about your paternal? Oh, I don't know. Uh, she, she, she left her children when they were young and took off another man. And we really never spoke for her. It was Mac something. McIntyre, maybe. McDonald, maybe. McDoozle, maybe, McDonald, Darkwing Duck, I don't know, but some act something. I, mean, I, I just thought, we forget, but God doesn't. So, so, so look at verse 24 and 25, it says this, uh, all flesh is like grass, all its glory like the flower of the grass, the grass withers, the flower fails, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. And so on a scale of one to five, the question is, is this, do I daily, daily, do, do I daily with thanksgiving remember my calling and inheritance and the hope of heaven? Do you daily get up and say, 
Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Lead me not to temptation, but deliver me from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. You've got to fight to let that be part of your mind. It's got to be part of your mind if you're going to be an exile who lives with dignity under the cross of Jesus in a culture that's pushing you to the side. Do, 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 I, do I daily do these things? One to five. Number two in this passage, it says, pursue holiness. It says, since you have, uh, since God, as he who called you is holy, be holy also yourselves in all of your behavior. To me, holy means to be set apart for the purposes of God. It means not to be conformed to the standards around you. It means to, to be different to the glory of God. It means to enjoy your salvation. It means to be filled with, with joy and happiness and peace and purpose. That, that's what it means to, to be holy. Are you stepping further into the light? Brothers and sisters, are, are, you, are you going into the things of God? Hebrews chapter 12, in this New Testament book, Paul has just said, thanks be to God for the discipline and love of God the Father in our life. And then he turns it around and he says, therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees. We will have drooping hands and weak knees at times. And make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather healed. Says, don't, don't be a stumbling block. Live with purpose and dignity. And then this, strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. And the writer of Hebrews says, you know, really, holiness is not an option that all Christians are called to holiness to be set apart for the purposes of God because without that holiness... No one will see the Lord. Well, we're different. We march to a different drummer. We have the Holy Spirit. We, we, that's just who we are. And, and so we're just, that, that, that's what we do. Now, I've never seen these shows, so don't think less of me than you do. But every time I see an advertisement for Housewives of New Jersey or California or New York or Atlanta or or Austin, or Boston, or whatever. I just go, people really watch those things? I mean, really? I mean, really, you, you, you watch, you watch that? And when I travel, I'll tell people, where are you from? I'm from Charleston, South Carolina. Oh, we watch, what's the show about Charleston? Starring, starring the former congressman's son who's just so, so sad. What's, this, what's, what's it called? Huh? Southern Charm. Southern Charm. Just a pox on that house. Now give me a break. I want to say, that is not my city. That's a parody of stupidity, but it's not my city. This is what, this is what enthralls people, folks. That show's been popular for years. I mean, this, I'm, I'm not stupid. Keeping up with the Kardashians. I mean, it's been around for 15 years now. Really? Come on. So, so I'm, I'm just, this, this holiness, and we, we had a, my, my question here, one to five, is, is this, does the word of God compel you to go deeper into the light of Christ on a week-by-week -week basis? And listen, there's a, there's a difference between reading the Bible as literature or because it's beautiful poetry or reading the Bible to encounter the triune God by the power of the Holy Spirit. Or reading the Bible to say, check off, I've read the Bible today. And my, my, my issue is, 
that as I read the scripture, I should be encountering God. I, we had a worship time staff, campus outreach, PCA staff this week, and Danny Beach, one of our pastors, spoke on James 1, did a great job about the Bible should be teaching us. And he gave the example, it's a great example. He said, he said reading the Bible it can be like flying. You, you're on the tarmac and they give the obligatory uh, flotation cushion is underneath your seat in case we lose air pressure and the mass drop down, secure yours and then your child. And, and here's the way you blow into the, you know, and, and you're sitting there. I've even noticed now when I fly that people are, are having those lectures giving on the seat monitors and they're using humor. They're throwing in humor just to get your attention, which is pretty smart. But you, you just, you don't listen. I, I don't listen. But you're flying at 35,000 feet. All of a sudden, you hit an air pocket. And whenever I'm flying and something happens, I always look up at the stewards. And if they're serving coffee and smiling, okay. If they're going down the aisle screaming, problems, <laughs> problems. So you're going to 35, and all of a sudden it does that, and, and the stewards are running down the aisle saying, good stuff. I'm going, ooh, and then all of a sudden the masks fall down, you know? And the captain comes on, guess what? I am listening. <laughs> I'm dialed in. I think most of us, yeah, most of us think that we're on the tarmac, no big deal, we're flying to Atlanta, we're not going over a body of water for heaven's sake, we don't have to worry about a flotation cushion, uh, it's going to be 35 minutes up and down, no big deal, here we go, done this a thousand times. That's the way we think we're living, but really, let me tell you, I, I think as I look at life, that we're really at 35,000 feet, and we're hitting the air pockets, and we don't get it. And unless I understand the absolute importance of a grace from a living God that gives me strength and, and, and understanding and wisdom, I will not run to the scripture to be changed. So, so holiness. Thirdly, it says a reverential fear. He says, since you, you, you have this experience of knowing the, the living God, he, he says this, um, conduct yourselves with fear, reverence and awe throughout the time of your exile, knowing you were ransomed from the empty way of life handed down to you by your forefathers, not with silver and gold, but with the precious blood of a lamb slain for you. So, so the third standard is if I'm to be an elect exile, I've got to live with reverential fear, knowing the ransom of Christ on the cross as my substitute. And if I'm to live as an exile, I've got to glory in the greatness of the cross. And I've got to be mesmerized and thankful for all that God has done for me. So, so, we have the privilege of being involved with a group of people in North Africa in seminary training and every year, we have the last five years, we get to go to North Africa and I teach at a seminary and uh, it's in Tunisia. And so we have some friends who live outside of the city about three hours of the capital city and so we have tried to go see them, they're wonderful people and we went to see them and we sometimes take them to a little place called Tabarka. It's on the coast, right on the border with um, uh, Libya and uh, Algeria, and, and so we, we, we go there and 
it's kind of a hole in the wall place, but it's beautiful and people are nice. And so we met them there and then we drive over the mountains on a very narrow, windy, rickety road um, and, and go back in, into Tunis. So we're, we're leaving Tabarka and we're driving across the mountains and, and a car I rented from, no joke, Camel Rent-A-Car. So Camel Rent-A-Car in Tunisia. And as we're going across the mountains, I, I, I look to my left and I see, I see this. It's, it's a beautifully manicured graveyard. And I go, wow. So I, I pull over and go over there and walk through the graveyard. I like to walk through graveyards. And these were soldiers, British soldiers, who were killed in 1942 to 1943 during a six-month operation where the Americans and the Brits pushed back a guy named Rommel and the Nazis who were trying to take over North Africa and the oil reserves of that area. And 77,000 boys, Brits and Americans, were killed. And, and I walked up and down those rows and I said, 18 years old, oh man, Eight, 19, 20, 21, 18, 18, 19, 20, 20. I'm just, I'm just young men, young, young men. And it was a solemn moment and I just thought, these men died so that, so that the, the, the absolute totalitarian horror of Nazism would not reign in Europe and North Africa and the Middle East and, and beyond. But they, died. they stopped They stopped it in part there by giving their life. And I thought, God forbid that I should ever forget about the incredible price that's been paid for people, by people for my, for my freedoms. And then I, I reflected on that. I thought, but, but how much more, see, how much more should my heart leap with gratitude and joy when I say I've been ransomed by the shed blood of Christ, who was foreknown before the creation of the world, but in these last times has been revealed for me. And I cannot purchase my freedom with silver and gold, but it's only with the blood of Christ. It's not by my, my wisdom or my intuitive nature or anything else. It's only the shed blood of Christ. I've been ransomed. I am his. How much more should the cross make me worship and glory and be glad. And then, then he says this, not only ransomed by the shed blood of Christ, but ransomed from the empty way of life handed down to you by your forefathers. Now I want you to hang with me here. We are surrounded by a culture that has the empty way of life stamped all over it. And, and, and it beckons us to give ourselves to those things that have no significance. And, and, and our lives get caught up in them and we get enthralled by them, whether it's the way we look or what we drive or where we live or what school we went to or what kind of grades we make. And it's, it's, those, aren't, those aren't bad things necessarily. But if we make our, our, the basis of our worth on those things, it is incredibly defeating. It's incredibly disheartening. It, it just... It just so, so don't buy into the empty way of life culture around you, the this world only way of thinking. Don't do that. Young people, don't do that. You've been purchased by the shed blood of Christ and you have an inheritance and you're eternally loved and you rejoice in that. And he says this, 
the empty way of life handed down to you by your forefathers. Every person here is part of a family system. And every family system has sin in it. There's no perfect family. I'm just going to be honest with you this morning. So, so my particular family system. So, so there, there's been sin, there's sin patterns in, 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 in every family. Some families are just filled with anger. You, you know you are. So, some families just say, man, if you ever mess with my family, it's the Hatfields and McCoys. We know where you live and we will get you. Some families are filled with arrogance and pride. Some fa- there's some, there are family units I've talked to where adultery, sexual immorality is just part of the landscape. And it's amazing how those things, I don't get it, are visited from generation to generation. Listen, the power of the Spirit through the shed blood of Jesus breaks those things in your life. My example. I won't tell you which side of the family, but I'll just tell you what, some, some things we've dealt with. My family. One side of my family is filled with alcohol abuse, bad alcohol abuse. Um, in fact, I, I was reading this week, I was reading a, a set of papers from a scholarly conclave and one of the speakers was talking about the opioid crisis in America. I did not know this, but she said, her name is Mary Eberstadt, who's an incredible writer. She said that from 1999 to 2017, the Center for Disease Control in Atlanta tells us there, at least, there have been at least four 100,000 deaths from opioids. I had no idea. And so opioids are like alcohol. You may, you may die of that, but the ancillary damage, the, the, the collateral damage just goes on and on and on. So, so in my family, there's alcohol abuse everywhere. And because of that, broken marriages. And because of that, in part, children born out of wedlock and abandoned. And, and so that's part of my heritage. And that's why as a child, my mom was incredibly strong and we don't do this. And as a child, I thought, man, wow. And then as an adult, I found out some things that made me think, and now I know why. On the other side of the family, it's interesting, uh, no alcohol abuse. But the, the problem on this side of the family, to be bluntly honest, is we keep score and we do not forgive. And let me tell you, that is just as destructive as alcohol. Now, it's it's, it's tolerated, but it's destructive. There's a situation in this side of the family where a younger child corrected somebody else's grandchild that needed to be corrected, believe me, and the patriarchal matriarchal family heard about it and they'd been very dear friends, sisters, and so they didn't speak for 25 years until this woman died of cancer. How sick is that? Really, that's my family. Somebody about my family, a, a relative, I had a man that I enormously respected say to me, one day, I was 21, he said, I think this man is the meanest man I've ever met. My family. I went, wow. But let me say, the Holy Spirit of the living God was given to me when God loved me with an everlasting love to break those patterns in my life. You had those patterns, guys. 
I read this text and I say, he has redeemed us from the empty, futile, decaying way of life inherited from our ancestors. Now, I'm not saying to berate your family. I'm, not saying, I'm just saying that everyone has some of these issues. So I, I look at this and I go, wow, Jesus died on the cross to, to heal brokenness in me. So the question is, is, am I rejoicing with trembling on a week-by-week basis as I understand the wonder of sins forgiven at the cross which frees me from the futility of this world only living and ancestral sin. Am I really in exile to the glory of God? And number four, uh, the fourth statement about being in exile is do I love fervently from the heart? This way I understand this little passage in First Peter. He says, he says this, he says, um, he says, since you have in obedience to the truth, see, Obedience to the truth, purified your hearts for sincere love of the brethren, fervently love one another from the heart. For you have been born again of imperishable seed. So the way I understand the text is, Peter says, if, if you understand the greatness of your salvation and you understand the eternal nature of the gospel, they combine in giving you a love that's fervent, that this, this stretches yourself out. Now my, my question, do I fervently love people from my heart? And the interesting thing about the text, it doesn't say fervently love in such a way that it appears you do it. <laughs> it's not fake it. He says, strive to have it from your heart. Walk in grace, be kind to one another, tenderhearted and forgiving one another just as God has forgiven you in Jesus. Do you love people fervently from the heart? So a book called Deadly Sins, Deadly Passions, it's a good book about the seven deadly sins and He's got, a, he's got a chapter, the writer does, on envy. He's a college professor and he writes books and he says, he says I gotta tell you this, a true story. He says, there's a colleague at my university who writes good books and I wish I could write the way he does. And so this colleague at my university wrote a book on the poetry of Emily Dickinson. And as soon as it was released, the reviews were outstanding, the book started selling, and I become, became very envious. And on top of that, my 17-year-old daughter loves Emily Dickinson. And she said, Daddy, I want that book. That's just an open wound. I said, oh, great. I get it on the campus, I get it in the office. I get it. And so he said, I, you know, I was thinking about how, how do I conquer this? How? And so he said, what I did is I went to Barnes & Noble, I bought the book. I took my daughter, put her in the car. We drove across campus to the other side of campus housing. We got out. I knocked on my, my friend's or colleague's door, and I said, congratulations on the incredible receptivity of this book. I bought it. Would you mind autographing this and, and, and to, to my daughter, who's right here, who wants to thank you for it? I went, wow. He says, because I'm going to love people from the heart. The truth is to be obeyed in humility that purifies my soul. Strong stuff. So let's go back to Eli Weissel, the man who survived the Holocaust. This is what he says in this book. Again, World War II, six million Jews were killed. Six, six million he says, 
but, but across, he was on the, on the border of Romania and the Ukraine and Hungary was right here, kind of in the, right, right in that area. He says, Jews were unaware of what awaited them. Many Holocaust survivors I've interviewed over the years have said the same haunting phrase to me over and over, quote, if only we knew, close quote. If only they knew that the trains were going to Auschwitz and Buchenwald and Treblinka, they told me, they would have tried to escape the ghettos even as they were being marched to the rail station. If only they knew what Auschwitz meant, which is certain death, they would have risked everything to run, if only. But they didn't know, even though much of the rest of the world did. We had a Christian woman who served our family. He came from a very wealthy family in Romania. Dad was very wealthy, so they hired a, 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 a worker, a Christian woman named Maria. And he, said, he says this about her. There's a Christian woman who worked with us as our housekeeper uh, in Romania, and she was a wonderful woman to me. She was a saint. And they took the family, and they moved all these Jewish families into major cities and put barbed wire around them, let them out of the, uh, the area of the city. They called them ghettos. And so this Christian woman, when she realized her former employee, employer had been moved to a ghetto, risked her life to go to the ghetto. And she said this, our maid was an illiterate Christian woman. She was a wonderful woman. And she came to us in the ghetto and she pled with my father. She said, Mr. Weissel, don't go to the trains. The trains are taking to places like Auschwitz where you will die. Come, I beg you, escape at night. I have a hut deep in the mountains. You can stay with me and I will feed you and take care of you. Weissel says, we would have had our whole family survive. His mom and his dad and his sister were all killed by the Nazis. If only we would have known and listened to her. In addition to that, there was a half-wit from their village who escaped from the concentration camps, and he came back and he said, they're gassing people to death. They're killing people by the thousands. And Weissel said, we did not believe that a culture of people could ever do this. If only we had known. We listened to the radio in the ghetto. If, if President Roosevelt had made a speech or Prime Minister Churchill saying, Jews in Hungary, now it's your turn. We urge you, don't go to the trains. Here's some pictures of Jews going to the trains to their death. Don't go to the trains. Don't go to the railway station. He says, maybe not all of us would have listened, but I, I can tell you a high percentage would have gone into the forest and run for their lives, and many would have been saved. He says, I found out after the war in the 1942, the New York Times already had on page 16 that there, there was a liquidation of European Jews, and we didn't know. No one knew, if only. I read that and I thought, you know, <sighs> There are people in our circles of relationship. If you're a believer, they don't fully know that life lived without Christ is barren. They don't know that if they die outside of a relationship with Christ, they face an eternity of judgment. They are going to the train stations, and we need to stop and say, don't do it. Don't do it. Don't do it. That's your calling. That's my calling, 
to, to love people and to pray for them and to speak Christ to them. You know, we talk about the three people we're praying for as Easter 2020 approaches, that we want to speak to them about Christ and we want to mention his name and we want to pray for them and invite them to hear the gospel, invite them into our lives. See, here's, here's my concern. I, I can have well intentions for people that I know without Christ for months and months and months and months and never speak his name. We can't do that. They're going to the train station. They're going to the train station. So church, I plead with you to live as an elect exile with a hope this firm, with, with the desire to be holy for your joy and your usefulness. I understand you've been redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you and, and, and glory in the fact that you love from the heart because you see the beauty of the gospel and because you stand under the authority of the Bible. May God bless you as you live for him. Let's, let's pray. Lord, thank you for today and for this passage that has hands and feet. And I, I pray that we would be men and women who live with a sense of high calling and purpose. Um, I pray we look at our contemporaries and say uh, they, 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 there's, no, there's no foundational hope. There's no foundational hope. I thank you that our feet are grounded in true hope the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, the eternal Christ, the Son of God who died on the cross for our sins. So use us. Lord, I pray that for people here today who, who just don't have hope, that they, that they're kind of hopeless. I pray the gospel of hope would be, would be visited in their soul, even now, in Jesus' name. Amen.